I want to thank you for tagging that amen on that song, Colton, because I trigger every time we don't get to sing it. So <laughs> it's a, a good way to end that song, and it's what an amazing God we serve as we consider nature, as we consider the things around us, and all the evidences of, of who He is and His power. Glad to be here this morning. I look forward to being able to study with you with God's Word a bit today. We um, had a wonderful song service thus far, and I hope that I can contribute to your edification this morning as we study more in the book of Hebrews. And for those of you who haven't been here, we've been, I've been going through the book of Hebrews and talking about a few things. And today we're going to talk about a rest for the people of God that God has promised. And if, if you're unfamiliar with the book of Hebrews and don't really know what it's about, it's, it's a book written to Jewish Christians in sort of the middle, the latter part of the, the first century. And the Jews and the Christians at that time were uh, enduring severe persecution under the hand of the Roman Empire. And not, not very long after this letter was written, uh, in 70 AD, the city of, of Jerusalem would be destroyed, the temple would be destroyed. And as we see all throughout the New Testament, the Jewish Christians, those Jews that had converted to Christianity, they had a hard time letting go of their Jewish faith. They had a hard time letting go of the things that they had held dear for much of their life, being considered God's chosen people, the law of Moses, the prophets. And they had a hard time realizing and understanding that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all that and making him part of their lives, putting their full faith and trust in him. And so the book of Hebrews is written as an encouragement to those people and a warning not to cling to the old law and the things in it, but, also, but to focus on Jesus Christ and the freedom and deliverance that we have in him and how Christ is superior to anything else that you can put in your lives. He's superior to the angels, as we talked about a couple of times ago, to Moses, Levitical priesthood, Levitical sacrifices. And we started out talking about these seven wonders of, of Christ and how God in these last days has spoken to the people of this world through his Son who is the creator of all things, the heir of all things, the sustainer of all things, and he's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of his nature. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And because of that, he is superior to the angels and the messages that they delivered. He is superior to Moses. He's worthy of more glory than Moses, as we talked about last time. And these are sort of the main points we covered last time, how Moses was faithful as a servant but Jesus is faithful as an apostle, a high priest, and a son. Moses was a servant in God's house, but Jesus is the son in God's house. He's the builder of God's house. And Moses testified of things to come, a prophet that would be raised up from among the nation of Israel. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He is the prophet that God raised up. And so as we continue in chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews, what he's done is he's laid the foundation for an argument to show us about the rest that God has promised his people. And he, what, what he's saying here is, since this is true, since Christ is worthy of more glory than Moses, and we should be looking to, to Christ and put our faith and trust in him and not Moses or the law of Moses, then there's a rest that is remaining for the people of God. And it's a rest that goes all the way back to the time of the nation of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And we're going to look at some of that uh, put some of this, these verses in context with that this morning as well. But as we consider the fact that Christ is superior to Moses, that he is worthy of more glory than Moses, he's going to go on to say, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. 
Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so the writer of Hebrews is referencing all the way back to Israel coming out of Egypt, God delivering them from Pharaoh, leading them through the wilderness, trying to get them to the promised land. And time after time after time, they rebelled against God. They, they murmured against him. They complained against him. And finally, God said, I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. So what I want to do to begin with is to go back to the book of Exodus and read this instance here, this, this passage in Exodus chapter 33, verses 13 and 14. This, this passage is immediately following the incident at Mount Sinai where the, Moses had gone up to receive the, the law of the Ten Commandments, and while he was gone, the people became afraid, they became fearful, and they compelled Aaron to fashion the golden calf because they wanted a, a physical representation of a God that they could worship. And as Moses is getting ready to come down the mountain, God says to him, you better get down there quick because this people is already messing up. They're already forgetting everything that they've learned, and, they've, and you better get down. I'm going to go destroy them. And we see that God had just decided, you know what, this people that I just pulled out of, out of slavery and rescued, and they saw all the wonders I did, they've already messed up. I'm just going to destroy them. And Moses, I'm going to fulfill my promise through you. And we see one of a couple of times that Moses goes before God and pleads and intercedes on behalf of the nation of Israel and says, why are you doing this? You just delivered this people. You just rescued them. You did all that work in Egypt. You brought them out. And now the world's going to say, this God just brought his people out to destroy them. And we see Moses interceding on their behalf. And so God relents. He doesn't destroy the people there. He does send a plague upon them as punishment, but he doesn't destroy them. And in verse 13, it says, now therefore, this is Moses speaking here, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your, your what, excuse me, show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. So this is the promised rest that the writer of Hebrews is referencing. But we have a problem here, because verse 11 is telling us that I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Because what happened? Did God break his promise? No, God didn't break his promise. And we'll see here in a moment that promise still stands, but God didn't break his promise. The people, the nation of Israel as a whole, rebelled against him over and over and over to the point at which God finally threw up his hands and said, you're not going to enter my rest. You're not going to receive that. That's for other people now. So I have just a quick chart here. that This is just a few of them. It's not all the times we see Israel rebelling against God. Uh, Danny talked last week about the, the rebellion of Korah. That's not even up here at all. Before crossing the Red Sea, they complained they would rather have stayed in Egypt. When, uh, before you know, all the plagues and God was taking them out in the wilderness, and they're just like, we should have just stayed in Israel. We're going to die out here. They, they complained about water. They complained about food. They complained in general. They made the golden calf out of fear. And then finally, the last one we have listed here is they believed the evil report of the ten spies. And so as they get close to the promised land, they, they select 12 men, from each, one from each tribe of Israel. They send them into the promised land. They spy out the land. They see that indeed it is as God promised. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's, it's a bountiful land. But 10 of the spies come back and say, we can't do it. The people in this land are too big. They're too strong. They're too many. They're too powerful. We can't do it. Caleb and Joshua say, we can do it. God's on our side. 
But the people believed the evil report of the ten spies. And so Moses, or God is, Moses, I'm just going to kill them all. I'm just going to destroy them. I'm going to get rid of them, and I'll fulfill my promise to you. And again, Moses pleads their case, and God decides, okay, I'm not going to destroy them. But listen to what God says here in Numbers 14, verse 20. The Lord said, I have pardoned according to your words. Okay, Moses, you win. I'm not going to destroy them. But listen to what he says. But there's that crucial conjunction. Truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers and none of those who despise me shall see it. Every single person who was of age at this time that didn't believe the the true report, they all died in the wilderness. For 40 years Israel wandered and they all died, never having seen that land. Only Caleb and Joshua got to see it. Why? Because they rebelled against God over and over. They were unbelieving. They were unfaithful. They always go astray in their heart. And so what we see is hundreds of years later, David writes in the book of Psalms, chapter 95, verse 8, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, on the, day at, excuse me, on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, put me to the proof, going through that over and over again, verse 11, therefore I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So we have this problem here of a promised rest, but these people never saw it. Because in their unbelief, they had hardened their hearts, they disobeyed God, and God finally said, enough's enough. You're not going to see that rest. What does this mean for you and I? Why is this a significance when it comes to our study today? Well, it was important to these people that the Hebrew writer was writing to because it was important for them to understand that there was a rest still remaining, that that promise still stands. And he goes on to say that in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The promise of rest still stands. And the writer is trying to tell these people, listen, you've got hope. Now, you're, you're, you're enduring severe persecution. You're seeing all these problems. You're going to see the destruction of Jerusalem here in a few years. But don't worry about all that. Jesus is superior to all that. And there is a rest that is promised through Christ that is greater than even the rest of the promised land would have been had they actually received that. And so the promise of that rest remains. He goes on to talk about in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 4, he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Why is he bringing this up? Why is he talking about God resting on the seventh day, alluding to the Sabbath, how one of the Ten Commandments where God said to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, a day of rest where you don't do any work? You know, we as a people, we understand the need for rest, and sometimes we get not enough, and sometimes we get too much, maybe. You know, it's a crazy, as my wife calls it, it's a crazy season of life right now uh, around our house. We've got a senior in high school. We've got a junior in high school. All kinds of stuff going on. She's busy with work. I'm busy with work. And it's just a, it's just a busy time. And in all honesty, she doesn't rest as much as she should. I think I maybe get more than I should sometimes. But you know, we, we as a people, we need rest. It's something that that God designed and built into us, and it's in God's nature to provide a rest for his people. That's what the Sabbath day was all about. But more importantly, God wants a spiritual rest for his people. 
He wants to provide us the rest from the burden of our sin. He wants to give us that. It's in his nature. And so the Hebrew writer is saying here, listen, the promise of entering his rest still stands. And that's a promise that the people he was writing to could partake of. And that's a promise that you and I can be a part of as well in our lives. And it's in God's nature to want that for us and provide that for us if we are willing to do what it takes to to receive that rest. The rest hasn't passed away. He goes on in verse 6 of Hebrews 4. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So what he's saying is, listen, why would David write about this years and years and years later about today, don't harden your hearts because there's still a rest remaining. If, if that had already been achieved in some way, David wouldn't have wrote about it. And so he says in verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And some people might want to say, well, you know, the people that God initially made the promise to, they didn't receive it because they were disobedient. And so they wandered 40 years and they died. But then Joshua led Israel over the Jordan into the promised land. They conquered Jericho. They conquered all the lands there, and they finally did receive it. But they didn't receive the true rest because what he's saying here is, why would David still be writing about it years and years later? And why would he be telling them about it now? Why would David do that? Because there is a remaining rest for the people of God, and he wants them to be a part of that. Then he goes on to say in in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. How many times have we heard this verse quoted in our sermons? I mean, a lot. I've used it a lot. We want to talk about the power of God's word. We want to talk about the, the nature of how it can change people and how it you know, delves into our inner thoughts and intentions and it reveals who we are if we, if we get into it and study. All these things are true. And taking this, I don't know that you actually can take this passage out of context because he's, he's just talking. It's a fact. This is what God's word is. But in context, what he's saying here is, listen, this promise that still stands that is not completely passed yet, it still stands and it's backed up by this. It's backed up by the power of God's word and it's truth. And it's revealing nature, it's stability, it's power, it's reliability. God's promise is backed up for that. And you can take it to the bank. Maybe that's not a good phrase to use anymore. I don't know. But you can count on the fact that that promise still stands and it's backed up by the power and authority of God's word. And we have the full assurance of that in knowing that God's word doesn't fail, that God's word is living and active. So taking all this into account, the fact that we've talked about this promised rest that still remains, that the nation of Israel, that first generation, didn't receive because of their disobedience, but that promise still remains. It's still active. We can count on that. We can be sure in the Word of God because of that. Throughout these chapters, chapters 3 and 4, they're interspersed, if that's a word, all throughout this, this passage, warnings, calls to action. You want to enter this rest? You want to be a partaker in the rest that God has promised his people? There are things you need to be thinking about, things you need to be taking care of, action that you need to be taking in your own life. And I just want to go through that list this morning for us to think about. If we want to be as God's people and receive a rest that he has promised his people, 
then there are certain things we need to be doing in our lives to ensure that that happens. Number one, he says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So a few things about this verse. Number one, take care, be careful. That means we need to consider, carefully consider what we're doing. And what do we need to be careful of? He says, well, be careful that you don't have an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Okay, first and foremost, this takes away the P in the tulip doctrine right away, doesn't it? Perseverance of the saints, once saved, always saved. He's saying here, you need to be careful because if you don't, you can fall away from God. Your salvation can be lost. Remember, he's talking to brothers in Christ. He says, I want you to be careful. Now, what about this unbelieving heart? What, is he, what does he mean there? Did the, did the nation of Israel just all of a sudden stop believing that God was real? After seeing all the miracles in Egypt and in the wilderness, did they, all of a sudden one day, did they just like, eh, we don't really think God's real anymore. They didn't do that. They saw the wonders that he did. They saw the miracles and the power of God. But what was it about the unbelieving? What does it mean they had an unbelieving heart? You know, I've, I've, I've seen Christians in the past who they get caught up in sin and they get caught in sin and they've got the choice of either confessing that sin and acknowledging and repenting and receiving forgiveness or else they don't want to give that sin up. And there's only one way the conscience can, can handle that and that is to say, well, I just don't believe in God anymore. And that, that happens. It does happen. Do they really not believe in him, or are they, they're forcing themselves to believe it because their conscience won't allow them uh, to not believe? Because if God's real, but I want to commit this sin, I've got a problem. But if God's not real, then I can do whatever I want. I don't believe that's what he's talking about here. When he says an unbelieving heart, he's, remember, he's hearkening back to the nation of Israel. And they didn't just stop believing that God was real. What, did it, what was their unbelief, really? What did it show in their lives. You know, in verses 18 and 19 of Hebrews 3, he says, to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. What is he doing? He's linking disobedience with unbelief here. So when he talks about an unbelieving, evil, unbelieving heart, what he's talking about is a disobedient heart. And whenever we commit sin willfully, like they did, that shows an unbelieving heart. Not that I don't believe in God, not that I don't believe in Christ or that he's God's son, but I don't have enough faith and trust in him to say I'm going to do what he's told me to do or I'm not going to do what he's told me not to do. I'm going to disobey and I'm going to commit sin. At that point, we have an evil and unbelieving heart. Every time we commit sin, I believe it shows a little bit of unbelief on our part that I don't have the faith and the trust in Christ to do what he's told me to do. And so when he talks about here to take care in having an evil and unbelieving heart, he's, he's saying be obedient to God's word. Do what he tells you to do. Understand his word and follow it. Or else you'll be considered like this nation of Israel who had an evil and unbelieving heart. And he exhort one another about sins Deception, Hebrews 3 and 13 says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You know, we talk about it all the time, how we're a sinful people. Kerry mentioned it in his prayer this morning, how we all struggle with sin from time to time. And we've heard it said from the pulpit before, I've said from the pulpit before, we all, you know, fall short of God's glory. We all commit sin occasionally. When 
Uh, Trevor did his series on 1 John talking about assurance of salvation. And he talked about how we have to acknowledge the fact that we have sin. He says, if we say that we have sin, we're liars. Or we don't have sin, we're liars. We have to admit the fact that we have sin. And so I think we, in that, we find a danger, though. And that danger is that we somehow normalize or make sin commonplace. And just sort of brush it off as, well, everybody's got sin. It is what it is. And we don't, we don't treat our sin as seriously as we should. And I think what he's saying here in, in, in verse number 13 is sin can be deceptive in that way. And it's real easy for us to, to sort of get caught up and say, well, everybody commits sin. I'm no, I'm no different than anybody else. And we don't grieve over our sin. We're not convicted by it like we should be. We don't let it affect us as we should. And we're not willing to go before God and, like David did and just say, I'm a sinner, I'm worthless, please forgive me. Create in me a clean heart. We, we lose the, the motivation to do that when we make sin. And sin is deceitful in that way. Satan does everything he can to make us justify, rationalize our behavior. He says, I want you to exhort one another while it's called today. That's why James says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. That's why we're supposed to come to each other and confess our sin and say, hey, I've got a problem with this or I messed up. Will you please pray with me? Maybe I'm struggling with sin and I need your help to overcome it. But let's not just treat sin as something that we all do and, oh well, let's just go on about our business because when that happens, we can, our hearts can be hardened. And we can be led astray and we can fall away from God. In verse 14 of Hebrews 3, he says, We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Was he placing conditions on salvation here? Yeah. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. What is our original confidence? The decision we made to follow Christ. When we heard about Jesus and what he's done for us, when we made the decision in our lives to repent of our sins and be buried with him in baptism and follow him, putting our faith and our trust in him and being confident in that decision, but then also holding to that confidence. These people he was writing to, as many uh, Jewish Christians, they had a problem they believed in Christ, as Paul wrote to the, church in Galatia, the churches in Galatia. He said, hey, you, you've begun in the Spirit, but now are you being perfected in the flesh? You obeyed the gospel, you put your faith in Christ, but now you're going back to the law of Moses again and telling people to be circumcised and following the law of Moses? What's going on here? Hold fast to that confidence. As Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, he says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you which you've received and which you stand, by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. The gospel does these things for us. It saves us. We stand in it, and we continue to be saved. But does that if we hold fast to it and not put our faith and our trust in other things. That's exactly what these people had a problem with that the writer is giving this message to. Jesus is better than all that. He's better than the law of Moses. He's better than anything else we can put in front of him. And only he 
can bring us salvation. Hold fast to that original confidence. And now we have a verse that appears to be on the surface diametrically opposed to the previous point, and that is fear. He says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, wait a minute. Are we supposed to have confidence in our salvation? Are we supposed to fear for our salvation? The answer is yes. And I don't know how many of you remember Trevor's study in 1 John, but he talked about this a lot, about having confidence in our salvation, but also we need to understand and realize that we're sinners and where, where we come from and where we're going. We've we got to have that, and we've got to understand the truth about this unbelief and disobedience and how that can lead us to fall away from God. And we need to exhort about sin's deception and hold fast to that original confidence, and we need to fear or acknowledge that the danger exists that we can fall away. And just because it's possible to fall away doesn't mean it's probable. And if we're doing these things, if we are avoiding disobedience, if we are understanding that sin can be deceptive, and if we're holding fast to our salvation in Christ, then that's not going to happen. We're not going to fall away. But he says you need to acknowledge the danger, that the danger is real. And there's so many people in this world who preach the false doctrine of, well, once you're saved, you're always saved. God's grace is greater than all our sin. It is. But once you're saved, that's it. Your salvation can't be lost. No one can take it from you. You can't even throw it away yourself because God has ordained that you're one of his elect and therefore you will be saved no matter what you do. And brothers and sisters, the word of God does not teach that. It's an evil, wicked, and dangerous doctrine that has led millions of people astray. And we need to fear for our salvation, not be not the fearful of the unbelieving, not that kind of fear, an acknowledgement of the danger. And we need to be on guard, and we need to be careful, and we need to watch, and we need to exhort, and we need to hold fast to our salvation in Jesus Christ. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10 and 12. You think you stand? You think you got it all figured out? Think there's nowhere left to grow or to learn? Better take heed. It's possible. We need to strive to enter that rest. Hebrews 4.11, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall of the same sort of disobedience. Don't want you to be like those Israelites, he's saying. Don't want you to be like them and fall because of your disobedience. I want you to strive. What does that word strive mean? It means to endeavor or give diligence. In other words, it takes effort to follow Christ. It's not a one and done, I've given my life to God and now everything's all great and hunky-dory and I don't have to do anything. If we hold fast, and we've got to give effort, just as he tells Timothy, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse 7 through 10, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. What do we toil and strive for? Exercising godliness in our life. Being a godly people. Obeying God's commandments. Following Christ in the way that we live. Paul says we toil and we strive. Those aren't words that lazy people like to hear, are they? Toiling and striving. Doesn't sound fun. Doesn't mean it's not fun. It just means it's effort. It, it, it takes work. They're just saying, roughly paraphrased, that anything worth doing requires effort, requires work. Christianity is no different. In fact, it probably sets the original standard in that. We need to strive, give effort, 
into entering that rest. And finally, we need to realize that we're going to be held accountable. We read this passage earlier in verses 12, verse 12 about the Word of God being living and active and powerful and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. Verse 13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That same word that guarantees the promise that God has made, it also tells us that we're going to stand before God someday, and we're going to give an account. What is that account going to be? No creature is hidden from God's sight. It doesn't matter how well hidden you think your sin is. It doesn't matter who you're deceiving. It doesn't matter who you're fooling. You can fool yourself. You can fool your family, your friends, your church family. You can't fool God. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You ever have that dream where you're in school? I dream, back, I dream I'm back in high school all the time. You know, sometimes I dream I'm in high school, and then all of a sudden I realize I don't have any clothes on. What's going on here? Nobody wants to see that. What, why won't they look away? They should be looking away. Why are they looking at me? You know, God sees the good. He sees the bad. He sees the ugly. He sees it all. One day we're going to stand before him. We're going to give an account. Are we following these calls of action? Are we avoiding unbelief, disobedience in our life? Are we exhorting one another and understanding the deceitfulness of sin? Are we holding fast to our original confidence in Jesus Christ? Do we recognize the danger for us falling away? And do we strive? Do we give effort to enter that rest? And do we understand that one day we're going to be held accountable? Philippians 2 and 12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have already obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but also much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, This doesn't mean find your own way to be saved. Figure it out yourself. Good luck to you. What it means is you have received salvation through Jesus Christ, and you need to make sure you're giving the effort, you're putting in the time, you're understanding all these things so that you don't fall away from that. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You're going to give an account for that. I can't work out your salvation. You can't work out the salvation of any of your friends or your family. Each one of us will give an account. As we consider these calls to action this morning, this idea of a promised rest, that's what it's all about. The promised rest that God has given to his people. Those Israelites back in the book of Exodus, over and over and over. And finally God said, it's enough. You're not going to enter my rest. And the writer of Hebrews is begging, imploring his audience, which includes you and me today, Learn from their mistake. Don't fall like they did. Don't harden your hearts like they did. Don't be disobedient like they were. You follow Jesus. Forget about all those things that you think are dear to you, and you follow Christ, and you'll enter his rest. You know, there's no greater burden. You know, when you think about rest, I mean, it, it's something that we need. You know, we have to sleep every night. I can tell you a few people in this room didn't get as much sleep last night as they, as they probably needed, at least in my household, for a, a number of reasons. But, you know, my wife, I watch her week in and week out. She's up before the sun. She's at work before the sun. She puts in a full day. I'm usually home before she is. 
And by the time Friday gets here, she's like, I'm done. (laughs) I've hit a wall. There's nothing left in the tank. And she needs rest. We understand that, don't we? When we work physically hard, we understand that need for rest. And every, every single person in this room that's an adult knows about that. But, you know, the rest that we're talking about here is not a physical rest. The body needs that. We're going to rest when we have to. There's no greater burden than the burden of sin. That is a heavy, heavy load. And we bear it so needlessly. There is no need for you to carry the burden of sin. There is no need for that to weigh you down and to cause you such agony and spiritual pain and suffering. Lay it down at the foot of the cross. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Not rest from a physical labor. Rest from the burden of your sin. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, not your body, your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. There may be some in this room today who have never laid the burden of their sin down at the foot of the cross. The invitation of Jesus 2,000 years later still stands. Lay your burden down. Jesus says, come to me. You know, Jesus did the heavy lifting. Jesus bore the true burden. He bore the burden of the sins of the world as he went to the cross. And as he hung there in agony, and as he shed his blood, and as he died, he did the heavy lifting. And what he says in return is, come to me. Lay your burden down. If you want to obey Jesus in baptism this morning and lay down the burden of your sin, please take care of that right now. If you need the prayers of this congregation for any reason, please come have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing.